What would you say are the most well-known yet misunderstood verses of the Bible? Most well-known yet misunderstood verses of the Bible. Think about that. Uh, sadly, there are actually quite a few candidates. In fact, there's a book I've seen recommended, I've not personally read it, that is titled, uh, The Most Misused Verses in the Bible. And it walks you through 17 of the verses most commonly taken out of context. I've seen it recommended. As I, I scanned, uh, I think his name's Eric Bargerhuff's list of 17, you know, all but one of the six that first came to mind for me were, were on his list. Not surprisingly. For example, uh, Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Like all things, whatever my wayward heart desires. Jeremiah 29.11, for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Common coffee mug verse, but it's often taken out of context, ignoring the, the covenantal context in which that declaration was made. Proverbs 22.6, train up a child in the way he should go. Even when he is old, he will not depart from it. Treating Proverbs as though they are promises. Matthew 18, verse 20, for where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. The context being church discipline, the excommunication of an unrepentant church member. Those are four of my six most well-known yet misunderstood verses, but perhaps the number one most well-known yet misunderstood verse, the, certainly one of the most misused, the one that Bargerhuff leads off with is, judge not that ye be not judged. Matthew 7, verse 1. A fellow church member wants to divorce his wife and marry a younger woman. Who are you to judge? Someone wants to pursue a, a same-sex romantic relationship. Judge not, right? That's what Jesus said, isn't it? Did Jesus mean that there are no moral absolutes? That nothing is wrong so long as it feels right? Surely that's not what he meant. So what did he mean? Is it, is it that we're simply just not to tell others about his moral and ethical commands? Well, did he not say, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Matthew 28, 19. That is the great commission to teach people to observe what God has commanded. Okay, so what then does it mean to judge not? I invite you to turn with me to James chapter 4, verse 11. You can find it on page 231 in the second half of the Pew Bible. James chapter 4, beginning in verse 11. Hear the word of the Lord to you. Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There's only one lawgiver and judge, he who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? Let us pray. Our Father, our lawgiver, our judge, you alone who are able to save and to destroy, we bow before you now. We pray for you to speak to us through your word and to make us doers and not hearers only, deceiving ourselves. Bless the preaching of your word. In the name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. 
Well, with your Bibles open in front of you, as you glance over the the preceding verses from last week, beginning in chapter 3, verse 13, you'll recall that section contrasted worldly wisdom with godly wisdom. One producing the fruit of self-serving pride, the other the fruit of humility. For God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble, verse 6, chapter 4. Well, this call for the humility of of godly wisdom, for seeing God rightly and thus for seeing ourselves and others rightly before Him, this call for humility is then fleshed out in the the subsequent passages, really all the way through the middle of chapter 5, beginning with a prime example of not humbling yourself, judgmental speech. Prime example of not humbling yourself, judgmental speech, or you might say more generally, critical speech, speech that is sinfully critical of others. Uh, This is essentially the, the fourth time now that James has exhorted us in his letter in regard to, to critical speech. His moral exhortations of the letter began in this place. It began in chapter 1, verse 19, saying, Let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. He then declared, If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Chapter 1, verse 26. Only then to, to bemoan the fact that, that no human being can tame the tongue is a restless evil full of deadly poison. Chapter 3, verse 8. Well, now he returns to the topic. Verse 11, chapter 4. Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. Uh, the NIV translation renders it, do not slander one another. Do not slander. The, the Christian Standard Bible renders it, do not criticize one another. Others go with the more general and literal, do not speak against one another. Well, speaking against, it certainly includes uh, what we would normally consider as slander, as the NIV translated it, but it's also broader than that. I think we can identify three different categories of critical speech against others that the Bible condemns and that are in play here in chapter 4, verse 11 of James. First, there's what you might call slanderous speech. Slanderous speech. Saying something negative about someone that is not true, that you know is not true, and yet you say it for the sake of causing them harm, right? Damaging their reputation. Libel, defamation, slander. Just think about the lies and and other distortions of the truth that are so common in the political realm. Right, where, where politicians are, are always trying to build coalitions against their most threatening political rivals, and they use slander to that end. Well, sadly, such self-serving behavior takes place between Christians as well. And that's the first category of speaking against one of your brothers or sisters in Christ. Slanderous speech, speaking falsely. And then secondly, there's what you might call maligning speech. Maligning speech, saying something negative about someone uh, that you know is true. So slander, you know it's false. Maligning them, you know it's true, but it's not said with the intent of seeking their good. It's not said with the intent of exhorting them out of love for them or of seeking help from somebody else to come, come alongside you to, to counsel the offending party, but rather it's spoken with the intention of, of causing the offending party harm. Most gossip at least begins in this category of critical speech, maligning speech, sharing something you know is true but is negative and not shared for a good purpose. 
We read a few weeks ago from Proverbs 26-22 about gossip. It says, the words of a gossip are like choice morsels. They go down to the inmost parts. And that's the real test of whether something is gossip or not. If you're finding it enjoyable to speak to or about someone negatively, or to hear a negative word about someone else, as though you're, you're chewing on a choice morsel, you enjoy it, you delight in it. Well, if that's the case, it's gossip. And it's deadly poison. It's the second category of speaking evil against one another, maligning speech. Speaking truly, but unhelpfully. And thirdly, there's what I would label judgmental speech, which is where gossip often leads. Judgmental speech, saying something negative about someone that you merely think is true, but don't and can't know for certain. Judgmental speech. Perhaps the most common form of judgmental speech is not so much presumption about what someone is doing or has done, but but rather presumption about why they have done what they have done or are doing what they are doing. Jumping to conclusions about a person's heart, about their motives. You've observed or you've, you've heard about certain behaviors that are not in and of themselves sinful, but you've chosen to ascribe those behaviors to some unproven, unobservable sin of the heart. Oftentimes it's pride. You're accusing people of pride or of jealousy, covetousness, manipulation, hate, what have you. Sins of the heart. But you don't know what's in another person's heart. In such presumptuous, judgmental speech, it's rarely spoken for the sake of seeking that person's good. Spoken for the sake of causing them harm. That's what what makes judgmental speech a prime example of not humbling yourself because you are arrogantly assuming that you can read someone else's heart and mind. You're placing yourself in judgment over them, judging them to be guilty. And with your your critical defaming words, you're punishing them for the perceived sin, which is to, to arrogate to yourself the prerogative that does not belong to you, but to God. Not just to judge, but to punish. Like slanderous speech and maligning speech, judgmental speech, it's it's a kind of character assassination. And that's a very serious thing. Character assassination. It's a serious thing not just because of how valuable our reputation is before others. Read in Proverbs 22, verse 1, a good name is to be chosen rather than great riches. Favor is better than silver or gold. Our reputation is very valuable. So character assassination is a serious thing. But that's not the only reason it's serious. Character assassination is a very serious thing because of how closely it relates to literal assassination, to the the sin of murder. Notice the connection that Jesus makes between insults and murder. The Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5, verse 21, Jesus says this, You have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not murder. Whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. Whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. Words meant to cause harm rather than good contain within them the seed of murder. The seed of murder, the desire for someone's harm rather than for their good. And that desire for someone's harm can develop into a desire for their death. 
It is akin to murder, says Jesus. Again, words have tremendous power, both for good and for evil. As we talked about when we were in chapter 3, the most powerful tool that any of us has is our tongue. So may we humble ourselves before the Lord and seek to use our tongues, these powerful instruments, for good and not for evil. Of the three categories of sinfully critical speech, you've got slanderous speech that's false, maligning speech, true but unhelpful, and judgmental speech that is unproven, What's that third category, judgmental speech, presumptuous speech, that that James seems to primarily have in mind here when he says, do not speak evil against one another, brothers. Because he continues by saying, the one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. And then verse 12 goes on to draw attention to the final judgment to come involving a person's eternal destiny. So it's not straightforward, maybe, the first time you read this verse. How does judging your brother, how does judging the the unspoken motives of their heart, especially judging their spiritual condition before God, how does that equate to judging the law? It's maybe not straightforward, but as you think about it, it becomes clear. It's judging the law when you judge your brother because the law commands you not to do that. The law commands you not to judge your brother in this way, not to engage in this sinful kind of critical speech. For example, the law says, the ninth commandment, you shall not bear false witness against your brother that prohibits slanderous speech. Exodus 20, verse 16. There's Psalm 50, verse 19, where God says to the wicked, you give your mouth free reign for evil and your tongue frames deceit. You sit and speak against your brother. You slander your mother's son. Thus, he condemns judgmental speech. In Romans chapter 14 and 1 Corinthians chapter 4, the Apostle Paul reflects on the fact that the day is coming when each one of us will give an account of ourselves to God. He is our judge. And thus, from the fact that God is going to judge us, Paul deduces that we must therefore not arrogate to ourselves the prerogative that belongs to God alone in speaking judgmentally of others. It is against The law. And then there's the famous passage from Leviticus 19 that we read earlier that James seems to be reflecting upon throughout this whole letter. He keeps coming back to parts of Leviticus chapter 19. So we read Leviticus 19 verse 15. It talks about not showing partiality to the rich at the expense of the poor. Same thing James talked about in chapter 2. And then Leviticus 19 16, next verse says, You shall not go around as a slanderer of your people. You shall not stand up against the life of your neighbor. Standing up against the life of your neighbor, it seems to mean don't don't place your neighbor's life at risk. Well, that certainly relates to character assassination, especially given the importance of a person's reputation in that culture. And then the passage goes on, Leviticus 19, verse 17, to prohibit hating your brother in your heart, taking vengeance on or, or bearing a grudge against your brother. But instead, verse 18 commands us, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Cited in James chapter 2, verse 8, as the royal law, the royal law of love. So if the royal law of love commands you not to employ judgmental speech against your neighbor, then you do so anyway, well, you're not only judging your brother or sister to be in the wrong, you are judging the law that told you not to do that to be in the wrong. That's what sin is. Sin 
is a judgment that God's law is wrong, that God's ways are not best for us. It's like Adam and Eve in the garden. We sin when we claim the prerogative to determine for ourselves what is good and evil, what is right and wrong. We claim to possess that knowledge over against what God has told us is right and wrong, good and evil. We can't claim that Jesus is Lord, that He is our King, and then disregard whichever of His instructions we disagree with. To do so is to claim that we are Lord of our lives. We are King. We are lawgiver. We are judge. For James says, if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. It's like if there's a stop sign in your neighborhood that you consistently ignore and treat as though it's not there. When you do that, you're judging that law to be wrong. We must not do that with God's command to love our neighbor as ourselves, to not judgmentally speak of them. Instead, we must humble ourselves. We must be doers of the word, not hearers only. As James said at the end of chapter 1, the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, well, he will be blessed in his doing. Placing yourself above others places yourself above God's law. Placing yourself above others places yourself above God's law. And that is not the path to blessing. As verse 12 says, there is only one lawgiver and judge, he who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? At this point, I'd like to, to take a step back and to consider three kinds of sinful judging. Three kinds of sinful judging that we see addressed in scriptures, specifically in three key New Testament passages. The first being that oft misunderstood passage, Matthew chapter 7, verse 1. Judge not that you be not judged. Jesus goes on and explains what he means. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. With the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you see the, the speck, the tiny little speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log, the plank that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, oh, let me take the speck out of your eye when there's a log in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Clearly, Jesus is not saying that, that nothing is wrong so long as it feels right, as though there are no moral absolutes, as though he came and died for nothing. No. Nor is he saying that, that we're not supposed to tell others about his ethical demands. We are. Notice that the loving thing to do in his teaching there is to help take the speck out of your brother's eye. That's what love demands, but only after you've acknowledged your own sin so as to not become a hypocrite, acting as though you're not equally a sinner in need of salvation. He's talking about hypocritical judging. That's the first category of sinful judging. I'd label it hypocritical judging. It's treating people as though you're better than them as though you're beyond the need for grace, as though you're beyond the need for correction yourself. That's hypocritical judging. That's the first category. The second of the three categories of sinful judging is legalistic judging. Legalistic judging. It's something we see spelled out in Romans chapter 14 most clearly. We actually looked at that passage, Romans 14, in some detail in our last Sunday evening gathering a couple Sundays ago. So 
I'm not going to take the same amount of time that we did with it then. Just just let me summarize chapter 14 of Romans now. Uh, There's some Christians with a weak conscience who wrongly believe that it's sinful to eat meat. They can only eat vegetables. And those vegetarians are, are passing judgment on the meat eaters. And then there's another group of Christians with a weak conscience who wrongly believe that it's sinful not to observe certain holy days, uh, presumably the, the Jewish feast days, and especially the Jewish Sabbath on Saturday. And these Sabbath observers are passing judgment, it says, on those who don't see things the way they do. And so Paul writes in verse 10 of Romans 14, Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or you, why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. So then each of us will give an account of himself to God. Therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. So clearly this is different than Matthew 7. It's not the hypocritical judging of Matthew 7. It's legalistic judging. That is adding commands to God's law that he has not given. He hasn't commanded us not to eat meat. He hasn't commanded us to observe the special holy days of the Jewish calendar. And to insist upon that is to add to his law and to be a legalistic judge of others. But as common and as serious as hypocritical judging is and as common and as serious as legalistic judging is, the third kind of sinful judging is probably the most common. It's what I'd label presumptuous judging. Presumptuous judging. The key passage for presumptuous judging is 1 Corinthians chapter 4. 1 Corinthians chapter 4, where Paul writes this, beginning in verse 3. He says, With me, it's a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself. For I am not aware of anything against me, but I am not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time. Do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each will receive his commendation from God. So clearly, this is not the hypocritical judging of Matthew chapter 7. It's not the legalistic judging of Romans chapter 14. It's presumptuous judging. It's jumping to conclusions about a person's heart, about their motives. And this is the kind of judging that James has in mind in James chapter 4 when he writes, Who are you to judge your neighbor? The scriptures are actually filled with examples of this kind of presumptuous judging of people's motives, often with very grievous consequences. The more you you keep your eyes open for this, uh, the more you'll see it. In fact, I'd like you to think about it and then come to me and bring me examples that you see of people misjudging the motives of somebody else's heart in the Scriptures. We might talk about that next Sunday evening, so be thinking about that. I'll just point out a few right now. Joshua chapter 22. Joshua 22. So the people of Israel have, have conquered the land of Canaan, and uh, two and a half of the tribes are beginning to settle in their apportionment just east of the Jordan River. And as they do so, uh, they build this huge altar west of the Jordan. Now, as they build this altar, uh, they, they have no intention of using it to offer sacrifices to God. They know they're not supposed to do that. You're only supposed to have one altar that you sacrifice 
animals before God, and that's in the tabernacle, which at that point was in Shiloh. That's not why they built this great altar west of the Jordan. They built it as a reminder to future generations that even these Israelites who are on the other side of the river, yes, even they are our faithful, true Israelites who, who worship God in spirit and in truth. But when the rest of the tribes east of the river hear about this altar they've built, well, the tribes east of the river wrongly assume that the eastern tribes intended to be a new place of worship. They intended that altar to be a new place of worship, which God had not commanded. And chapter 22 of Joshua, verse 12, the whole assembly of the people of Israel gathered at Shiloh to make war against them. Civil war is about to break out upon God's people. Now they, they finally, having some measure of peace, they're settling in the land. They're about to have civil war. Why? Because of presumptuous judging of the motives of another's heart. Now, thankfully, before civil war takes place, the gathered army of the western tribes, they send over some spokesmen to the eastern tribes to call them to repentance. And when they do so, they discover they have a mistaken judgment, and thus war is averted. But that shows how serious presumptuous judging can be. In fact, in 2 Samuel chapter 10, war does break out between multiple nations and tens of thousands of people die, all on account of one man mistakenly judging the motives of King David's heart. One man mistakenly judges the motives of King David's heart, and tens of thousands of people die. And then, of course, there's the hypocritical and legalistic judging of Jesus by the holier-than-thou Pharisees, who decide that he's a sinner because he doesn't observe their man-made traditions. And then that hypocritical and legalistic judging turn morphs into presumptuous judging of his motives. They conclude that Jesus performs the miracles that he performs by the power of Satan. Matthew 12, 24. And so they have him killed because they mistakenly judge the motives of his heart. This helps us to see that all of this sinful judging, sinful judging is a form of self-exaltation. Sinful judging tears others down for the sake of building ourselves up, both in our own eyes and in the eyes of others. It's all over the Scriptures. Why do you suppose this occurs so frequently in biblical history? It's because of how frequently it occurs in our lives, in our families, in our workplaces, in our friend groups, in our churches just like the churches to whom James is writing. We are all guilty of the self-centered, self-exalting judging of the motives of the hearts of others. So what then is the solution? Well, James is telling us, chapter 4, verse 10, Humble yourselves, therefore, before the Lord, and He will exalt you. Recognize that, verse 12, there is only one lawgiver and judge, He who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? It's not a terribly complicated point. Presuming to know another person's heart is playing God. You cannot destroy anyone. Yeah, you can, you can murder them, but that's not, that's not what's in view here. What's in view here is eternal destruction versus eternal salvation. And you cannot save or destroy anyone. Only God can. And for each of us, it will be one or the other. The lawgiver's law has been made clear. We are to love God. We are to love our neighbor. 
But we haven't. Not perfectly. None of us have. So how can any of us be saved, we ask? Well, as James explained at the beginning of the letter, you must receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. That is, you must receive the gospel, the good news about forgiveness of sins for all who place their trust in Christ. He alone perfectly lived up to the moral absolutes that the Father demands. He alone lived a life free from the sinful judging of others. God the Son rightly judged us all to be deserving of death, but then He took on flesh to live and to die in our place, suffering the punishment we deserve for our sins, and He rose in victory to make us clean. So humbly receive Him in faith today, and you can be certain what the verdict will be as you stand before your judge in the final judgment. Not guilty. Acquitted of all charges, for Jesus has paid it all. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and He will exalt you. Well, as we we wrap up this examination of of sinful judging in three different categories of sinful judging, it's important to, to further clarify that this doesn't mean that we're not supposed to make judgments of any kind, right? Of course we are. This is central to what it means to be a disciple of Christ. We are to be constantly training ourselves to distinguish between truth and error, between right and wrong. Hebrews 5.14 says, Solid food, the word, solid food of the word, is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. That's what discipleship is, having your powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil, to make right judgments. And equally central to the role of disciple of Christ is the task of helping others to likewise firm up their own sound judgment. Because disciples make disciples. Not only is the New Testament filled with moral and theological exhortations for the reader, but it's filled with the exhortation for the reader to then turn and share these same exhortations with their neighbor, beginning with your fellow church members. Rather than taking the time to once again turn to the various key passages that speak of this, let's just stay in the book of James and look at the closing verses of the letter. The very last two verses of the letter of James. After issuing 58 different commands in the span of 106 verses, James concludes with one last command. James chapter 5, verse 19. He says, My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. True, we, we must not judge others hypocritically as though we are not in need of grace ourselves. We must not judge others legalistically, as though we're making the laws. We must not judge others presumptuously, as though we can read their hearts and minds. But, watching your step in this regard, for the sake of love, you must take the speck out of your brother's eye, that you may be used by God to save his soul from death. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for the gift of your word. We, help, we pray that you will help us to see you rightly and to understand your word rightly and all that you call us to in this life. Expose the ways in us that we sinfully judge others. Humble us at the foot of the cross that we may be useful in your service as we share the one true gospel that saves with our lips and with our lives. Bless the preaching of your word. 
In the name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen.